Good morning. Good morning. We're glad to have you here at Genesis Church with us via live stream. And uh, we welcome you. Happy July 4th weekend. I hope you saw as many fireworks in your neighborhood as we did last Incredible, night. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I think all of the United States, I've been getting feedback on a question I put on Facebook about it and that everybody's neighborhoods were much the same way. Yeah. And I just think America's trying to say, hey, COVID, you're not going to get the better of us. Right. Uh, we're free. <laughs> and so anyway, we rejoice in the freedom that uh, July 4th means to all of us here in the U.S. Um, so if you're listening, you know, I'd love to hear from you this morning. If you would just send me out a text and say hi or out on Facebook Live, we're out there today. You can add your comments there, say, say hey, I'm watching, um, greet us. If I, if I can get you on my phone here, I'll greet you back. And, uh, or text me at 720-878-3323, We'd love to know who's worshiping with us here this morning. And when you go out and find us on Facebook, would you do us a favor? Share that with a friend, okay? Send it to him. Yeah. I'm underscoring. Underscoring. What you said. What I said. Yeah. That was good. Is that called repeating? Yes. <laughs> but from a different, unique voice that people sometimes hear differently. Oh, okay, great. Yeah. All right. Uh, remember that when I repeat you. <laughs> okay, moving on. Hey, well, we're going to be celebrating communion this morning. Uh, so you right there in your homes, uh, we, we have communion here for those of us in the room, but right there in your homes, go ahead and get something, a, a, a juice, a wine, bread, a cracker, whatever works for you, and later in the service, we'll celebrate communion together. Guys gathering this yeah, Thursday. We've been having a great time with this, so every other Thursday, essentially twice a month on Thursday at 7.30, it's a guys gathering. It's not a Bible study. It's, it's, it's not a men's um, Bible study or group. It is a guys gathering. And we challenge each other with our thoughts, with our, our comments, with our feelings. And we think deeply about a lot of things that are going on. In addition to that, though, we're having a lot of fun. We're laughing. We're talking about things that guys want to talk about. And we do it all on a Zoom call. So I invite you. If you're interested in that and have never joined us for this Zoom call, I want you to get a hold of us, contact us. Information is on the screen. You can go to the website, um, www.genesiscc, like charliecharlie.net, and you can log in there and uh, find the contact information. And what we need from you is an idea, or at least just the touch from you, that you want to join the Zoom call because we don't mass mail out the Zoom link. So I need to know that you're interested, all right? Guys gathering, 7.30 this Thursday. If you're interested, get a hold of us, whatever you need to do, call, email, text us, and let me know that you're interested and we'll send you the Zoom link to jump on this call. Guys, you will not regret spending an hour on that call this Thursday with us. It'll be one of the best hours you've spent all week, I promise you. You know, I, the, uh, especially, I'm sure there's tons of people who have thought about this all their lives. On the, I, on the other hand, I have been thinking about this about the last six years, okay, yeah. <laughs> several years, how it, important it is to hear from other people yeah. with an open mind. You might actually learn something rather than thinking everything I already know is the way, the only way. 
uh, you know, we, we talk about, for instance, in the church, we've been in ministry for close to 40 years. Yeah. And we talk about how that, you know, back in the 80s, what we taught, we'd be kind of embarrassed for anybody to oh hear it gosh. now. I'm so glad I didn't publish a book. <laughs> right. <laughs> because we, cause we keep growing yeah. and we keep learning. Yeah. And, and that's what the guys gathering that's does. That's what we're doing. Mm -hmm. That's what we're doing. And that's a safe place, okay? What we talk about there is safe. We don't share it with friends. I don't share our conversations with you even, okay? And uh, here's the deal. We have people from all around the country joining us on this call. Not just church members, okay? Not just Christians and not just church members from Genesis. Right. So, guys, join in on that. Again, just go out. If, you don't, if you're not already on the list, go out to our website. Contact us via email. Let us know your email address, and then Jeff will send you a Zoom link for Thursday night. I repeated you. You did. I underscored. See, I, I just said that, but she said it again. And see, some of you heard it when she said it. You didn't hear it when I said it. You like and, that? and you kind of perked up and listened when she said it. And, and so that's 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 why people get married. <laughs> You're so, learning something new here, right? So that now. the message doesn't get lost. Okay. <laughs> Everybody's laughing here in the congre in the congregation that, that's here in the sanctuary. And we appreciate those of you that joined us here live to be part of the congregation. We're just going to have a fun. I'm so, uh, we're just going to have fun. I'm so glad that you're here and taking part of this. And uh, uh, a great appreciation and thanks to all of our media people yes, who very keep much. this thing going week after week. Yeah. And uh, we love you. We appreciate you. Some of the St. John's media team stay over from their 9 o'clock service to help us with our 1030. We just so appreciate you. We've come to love you, to rely on you, and need you. And thank you very much. Okay, so uh, we want to thank you again for all of your faithful giving, and for those of you who maybe would like to give, you hear this message, you're being fed by it, and you would like to um, support Genesis Church once or more than once, you can go online to our website for online giving. That's one way to give. You can text to give, and I believe somewhere up there there's a slide, and the phone number is 720 Seven three zero eighty five ten. Hey, an announcement we don't have here, but I'm just suddenly reminded of, and uh, we are going to restart Bingo this Tuesday. We thought it was going to be last Tuesday, but Bingo Oasis wasn't quite ready to open. Mm -hmm. But this Tuesday, mm -hmm. we are all geared up, have everything ready. Right. We have two sessions, one at noon and one at 730. Uh, where there's COVID precautions that will be taking place, and it's at Bingo Oasis at, I believe it's 10657 uh, Melody Drive. It's mm -hmm. approximately 106th and Melody there in that little shop at, and that's this Tuesday. We invite you to come out and have some fun with Bingo, and for those of you from our Bingo congregation who are watching, <laughs> we welcome you back on Tuesday. We can't Wait to see you again. Yeah, yeah, really. Again, we're not going to be able to physically hug when we get there, yeah. but we're going to be loving each other and glad to see you all. So um, as we prepare for worship, um, Lisa and Matt are on a little vacation trip over the July 4th weekend, so they're not here today. But we're going to have some wonderful uh, music of worship. And uh, if it's okay with you, I'd like to just pray before we yeah, go absolutely. Ahead, as we enter into this next portion of our Sunday worship time, if we could just pray. Father, we just, I feel like we just kind of sped along here in announcements and everything, maybe just trying to get through it and not make this uh, too long, but right now I just want to relax into you. 
We want to sit at your feet. We want to hear from you this morning. I pray that everyone listening to us, Father, and listening to the message this morning, listening, participating in worship this morning, that we would each have a touch from heaven, a touch from you, Father, a word, an understanding, a revelation, an answer, a comfort. And we thank you for all that you do for us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, what a beautiful name. We're going to learn more about that name and why he died. His name is Jesus. Celebrate with us. Let's worship together with this beautiful song. What a beautiful name.
Well, good morning again, everybody. Gosh, it's so great to be with you and to be sharing this uh, wonderful message with you about Metaneo. Uh, camera guy, I probably, or girl, whoever's, I, because we have, I know you share your responsibilities back there. I might move around a little bit as I make some points. Help me out, okay, because I'm kind of excited about this. We are in a series called Metaneo. And this is part three, why did Jesus die? This word metaneo is a Greek word commonly translated as repentance. Now, repentance has taken on a connotation of meaning here in Western Amer in the Western civilization, in America and in Western evangelicalism that was never intended by the authors of the Bible. It actually is a compound word. It comes from two different words, one meaning together with and the other meaning mind, together with your mind. And to repent, as the authors of the Bible used it, didn't mean to have heavy sorrow and grief and shame and to come cowering to an angry God and begging Him to forgive us had nothing whatsoever to do with any of that. You need to erase that from your image of God and repentance. To repent, according to this Greek word metaneo, means to bring our mind together with God's mind. Secondly, it means a radical mind shift to realize God's thoughts towards us. To repent means that I take God's thoughts and I put them in my mind. I center God's thoughts in my mind. I, I stop thinking my own thoughts and I choose to think His thoughts. This word repentance is a fabricated word from the Latin word penance. And to give religion more mileage in trying to keep people uh, in obedience, okay, and submitted to the practices of the church then, it became repentance. So you, you not only did penance once, but you, need to do, need, you needed to do penance again and again and again. How many of you have ever felt that way towards God and in your walk of faith that I have to again and again and again get God's approval, show God that I'm worthy by my moral character and behavior? When actual, in actuality, it has nothing to do with it. Now, watch this. Metaneo. Repentance about God. I love that. I need to repent and begin to think the way that God thinks. It's repentance about the way I think about God. To think differently. To repent about God and quit blaming Him, quit seeing Him as an angry God, and start thinking, him, thinking of Him as the wonderful, incredible Savior, wonderful, loving Father that He is. Jesus called us to repent. He called us to change our minds and to think differently about God's thoughts. Now, we need a little backstory before we go and delve into the details of why Jesus died. Creation was God's forever declaration of His desire to be in fellowship with us. 
humanity. When God created this world and created human beings, it was his forever declaration, I love you. I want to be in fellowship with you. And the wording we find in Genesis is, let us make man in our image. It's a seven-word declaration of God's nature and his purpose. Let us, let us make man in our image. Who was he talking about when he said, let us make man in our image? He was talking to the Son and Holy Spirit. From the very beginning, Father, Son, Holy Spirit are all together. The beautiful Trinity, they're at creation saying, we want fellowship with humanity. We want to create a being called humans. And we're going to start with Adam and we're going to start with Eve. We're going to create them and we want them to come into our unity, our self-giving love for one another and be part of the Trinity. Hallelujah. His love created and His love gave. You remember the Scripture, John 3.16. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. God's not against you. God loves you. From creation, before you were ever born, God saw you. God saw you. God saw you. God saw you and you. God saw all of us. And He created us to have fellowship. God so loved. And He turned to, to Son, the Son, and to Holy Spirit and said, let's make man and do it in our image. They'll be like us. They'll be with us in the Trinity in self-giving love. And right there at creation, God unveiled His heart by stating, I want to bring man into unity with us. So we'll create them like us and they'll have perfect unity. So this is the backstory of what began at creation. And then sin. And then sin. Everybody knows about the fall, even if you're not a Christ follower, even if you're not a Bible reader, you've heard about the Garden of Eden and these two human beings called Adam and Eve and how they disobeyed God is what is taught. They disobeyed God and they ate of the tree that was forbidden and they fell. Now, I'm going to personalize the various points of this backstory by using the word you. All right? I hope that doesn't get upsetting for you. I hope you don't take things too personally. I'm trying to make a point. So I'm going to use the word you and personalize this backstory as I work through the points. Now, as we talk about this backstory of what happened once sin entered the community. Once sin entered that commune, that commune, that fellowship between humanity and God, there are actually two different versions of what happened. And it depends on how you were raised. It depends on your religious tradition and what area of the country and what area of the world you live in 
as to what you understand and to what you've heard about the version. Let me see if you identify with some of this as I begin to walk through this. Version number one. When sin entered in, when Adam and Eve fell and sin entered, here's version number one. A legal, wrathful punishment, obedience-based relationship began between God and human beings. You broke God's command and disobeyed. Number two, God in His holy wrath and anger banishes you and curses your future. Your punishment is separation from His presence. He establishes a system of rules called the law by which right standing and forgiveness has to be earned. Glimpses of a Savior who will eventually come and deliver us from God's punishment and wrath is foretold. This Savior arrives in the person of Jesus. Jesus demonstrates how to live a holy life and how to please God. Keep in mind now what I'm talking about. I'm giving you the backstory of what people have believed about the fall of Adam and Eve and then how to how the relationship between Adam and Eve changed once sin entered. There's two different versions of this. I'm going through version one right now. So the Savior arrives in the person of Jesus. Jesus demonstrates how to live a holy and pleasing life before God. He introduces a plan of salvation. That being, if you trust in Him, you'll experience God's mercy and forgiveness. All right, I'm not even through yet. Does this sound familiar? Does this sound like what you and I were taught in Sunday school? Taught in our various churches? All right, this is the backstory of Adam and Eve and what happened once sin entered. Now, Jesus dies to satisfy God's bloodthirsty demand for punishment and to stay the wrath of God against human sin. Oh, final point in this version. Jesus is raised from the dead to demonstrate His just victory and foreshadow us going to heaven. Now, that is version one of the backstory of what happened and what happened when sin entered. And basically, I, I know that's what I was taught. That's what I learned in Sunday school. That's what I read in my storybooks. That is Western society and Western evangelicalism. However, it is not what the early church taught. It is not what the Jewish fathers taught. It is not the Hebrew understanding of the Scriptures in any way. Here's version 2 of what happened after sin entered, all right? And notice, the main difference between this version and the last one is this. It doesn't start with sin and obedience, but it starts with the Trinity and the Father's heart. Point number one, you were in the heart of the Father before birth. He so loved you that He wanted to bring you into relationship and fellowship with the Trinity. Divine love and self-giving forever. Point two. You believed the lie that Satan told you and you doubted that a loving Father created you as enough. Perfect. Just to start with. Very interesting. This phrase that I'm using, I'm using intentionally. 
because just this past week, I began to read things on Facebook and on Twitter where Stephen Furtick, one of, one of our great pastors up in North Carolina, pastoring a huge, successful church, very influential all across the world, Stephen tweeted out three words. You are enough. You are enough. And boy, the backlash he began to experience over social media. People calling him out and calling him deceived and calling him of the devil and calling his theology wrong and how could you be pastoring and leading a church when you leave Jesus out of such a statement and, and put it all on the goodness of a human being that you are enough? And people completely misunderstand the backstory that goes all the way back to Genesis. How foolish are we? How religious are we? How steeped in Western evangelicalism, stinking religious tradition are we? That one of our great pastors says the very thing that the backstory tells us about how that God created Adam and Eve enough. They were perfect. They were enough as God created them. Perfect in fellowship. Perfect in unity with God. Sinless. Had they never fallen. Had they never fallen. They were enough. And it's so important for us to start there as we entertain then how and why sin entered and why ultimately Jesus had to die. All right, point number three. God enters into your brokenness by immediately covering your sin and engaging your future. Next point. Each time you fail in God's agreement of blessing, He chases you to re-engage, bless, and forgive. You see this throughout the Old Testament where individuals that were in covenant relationship with God would disobey God, they'd turn their back on God, and God would run around and chase them and get back in front of them and woo them and call them and forgive them and guide them back into covenant relationship of blessing. Next point, the system of laws. Give, very, very important. I want everybody to listen to me now. You that are watching by live stream, really get this. The system of laws given to a nation to preserve its particular specific journey are never meant by God to be a basis for fellowship and forgiveness. What am I talking about? The Old Testament law. In fact, Isaiah the prophet says in chapter 40 and verse 6, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. That system of laws had nothing to do with the right relationship that God had created Adam and Eve to enjoy. But the false backstory, the bad backstory, the version one of our backstory tells us that it did and that we were responsible then as humanity to live by those laws in order to appease God's wrath and to, and to please Him and get close to Him. Next point in version two. Glimpses of a Savior are mistaken as a victorious reigning king who will conquer all foes and deliver our religion from the state. Next point, Jesus is born with an announcement of good news and peace to all men. Not just the people that pray the prayer or go to the church that you and I attend. This announcement was, quote, good news 
to all men. And Jesus perplexes and enrages a religious, pharisaical community by invalidating their legal system of scriptural requirements for having fellowship with God. Just blows it out of the water. Next point. In version 2 of why Jesus had to die, in version 2 of the backstory, he reveals God, Jesus reveals God as a loving father. He's neither filled with wrath or preoccupied with a bloodthirsty requirement for justice and judgment. In fact, he completely flips the religious system of teaching this judgment and this requirement for bloodthirsty justice. He completely flips it on its head by demonstrating the superior authority of his own teaching and life story and lifestyle. The lifestyle of love. The teaching of love. The plan of salvation that Jesus introduces focuses on the loving forgiveness of our Heavenly Father, removing the do-it-yourself requirement of obedience, prayers, behavior modification, acts of repentance, or system of religious observance. Jesus does not establish that. He does not build that. He does not make man responsible for that. In their return to God and dealing with sin, he removes it all. And Jesus then, final point, steps into the brokenness of humanity to halt the fall of Adam. He converts fallen existence to his father and eliminates our estrangement from God. He redeems all of humanity back into relationship with the Father, reconciling the world to God and finalizing with completeness and total victory over death and Hades. This reconciliation back to God through His resurrection. Now you might be asking, oh my goodness, what a different backstory. What a different version than the one that I was taught and that I've always believed. Yes, it is. And it's interesting how predominant wrath and punishment are in the first version of the backstory that we've all been taught and we all believe. How did this wrath and punishment as attributes of God get introduced into this love story? Now, the story above that I've just told you about both versions, version 1 and version 2, that backstory, that, that scenario of how did Jesus die, why did he die, it's broadly referred to in one word, atonement. Now, there are several different theories about this atonement and how it works and how man has to be saved. There's ransom theory. There's the penal substitution theory. There's the satisfaction theory. There's the Christus Victoria theory. There's the scapegoat theory. And I would dare say the one that I learned, and I'll bet the one that you learned about atonement and the whole backstory, and the one that is taught from the majority of pulpits and in the majority of churches, especially in Western evangelicalism, is called penal substitution. Now, next week, God willing, we're going to take all of these various theories and we're going to unpack them. 
all right? And I'm going to give you an explanation for each of these several theories and then do a direct comparison between the two that are most prominent, penal substitution and Christus victor. Those, that's where we'll spend our time, but I'll give you a description of all five of them. Now, regarding how did wrath and punishment come to be so predominant as the attributes of God introduced into this fantastic love story? Well, through penal substitution. The theory, penal substitution. And keep in mind, dear ones, penal substitution is a theory. It is not the gospel. All of these, including Christus Victor, which I happen to personally believe, and which for the first thousand years of the church was the only theory taught regarding atonement. It's the one that the Paristic Fathers believed and taught. Christus Victor. However, keep in mind that all of these theories are theories. They're not the gospel. They don't replace the gospel. And every individual has their particular theory that they are affectionate towards and personally find truthful and valuable to them, and it guides our religious faith. I hope to show you why Christus Victor should be the one that you adopt as the theory that gives you the proper backstory for what you believe and how you relate to the death of Jesus and his atonement. But it's penal substitution, which is by far the most commonly believed and held theory today about the backstory, about why Jesus had to die, and about atonement that introduces this overwhelming presence of wrath and punishment. You ready? Here we go. Here's a common wrath passage that's used by those who believe that atonement is defined by penal substitution. Now, these three verses are laden with metaphor. They make it sound as if God directly retri visits retribution upon sinners with personal indignation. Let's look at them. Psalm chapter 7, verses 11 and 13. God, or 11 through 13, excuse me. And, and while I'm, while I'm uh, bringing you these scriptures, our media people, because of my, my own arriving a little bit late today, are, are going to be sizing slides and getting them in the best that they can, so bear with them as, as that uh, image, a split-screen image, we're working on that, okay, so that you can see the scripture while I continue to talk. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Now, the scripture actually says this, all right? Somebody else didn't write this. This is the scripture, Psalm chapter 7, verse 11. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword, and he has bent and readied his bow, and he has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery. Boy, doesn't that sound like version one, fiery shafts, making his arrows fiery shafts. Doesn't that sound like the first version that we read in penal or in uh, atonement, regarding atonement, called penal substitution. It's amazing. I submit to you, however, that those are not actually God's character, but they're metaphors, all right? And they have to be taken and read as metaphors. They're not actually showing us God's character. They're not revealing God's character to us. 
They're being used as metaphors. Metaphors of how man relates to God. Keep that in mind. Now, here's, here's what's interesting. And I don't just flippantly choose to interpret these, these three scriptures differently than they are written. Go down in the very same chapter, starting in verse 14. Let's keep reading the context. Verse 14. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. Who does? The wicked man, he conceives evil on his own. He's pregnant with mischief. All right? Verse 15. He makes a pit, digging it out, and he falls into the hole that he has made. Does God force him there? Does God send him there? Does God shoot him first with an arrow, and after he's bleeding and bloody and all full of, uh, take him and throw him into a hole? No. He sends himself there. New Testament says judgment is self-activated. Verse 16, his mischief returns upon his own head and on his own skull his violence descends. Judgment is self-activated. What we commonly call the wrath of God. What we know is the retribution and wrath of God. There's nothing more in these allegories or in these metaphors than than man being judged, not by God, but by his own sin. Sin has inherently in it judgment. The wage, Paul taught this, the wages of sin is death. If you sin, you are going to die. If you live a sinful life, you're going to die. If you push and shove the grace of God and the love of God aside, you're going to die. Right? And that die, death may not be a physical death that's immediate. It's just, it's our way of living. It's our way of being. It's our way of thinking. It's how we relate to others. It's how we get along in this life. My lifestyle is going to be way beneath what God has promised and what God wills for me to live. And I'm going to be experiencing, quote, judgment because of my choices that fall back upon my own head. I fall into the pit I dug. I dug it myself. I fall into it. And then, of course, God, in the metaphor that we've read, gets blamed. Here's another common wrath proof text used by those who believe in penal substitution. Psalm 22 and verse 1. We all know it. We've all heard it. Even if, again, you're not a Christ follower or a Bible reader. Psalm 22 and verse 1. It's on the screen. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You recognize that, right? Matthew chapter 27 and verse 46, Jesus, hanging on the cross, quotes Psalm 22 and verse 1. And the presumption is that sin has separated Jesus. Because Jesus took my sin, he became sin for me. Then him hanging on the cross, he experiences the separation that sin causes between himself, God, and man. And so Jesus, hanging on the cross, becomes separated from God in God's wrathful punishment that's being laid on Jesus. Sound familiar? Sound like what you were taught, what I was taught in, in Bible uh, class, Sunday school? I, I'll tell you, I was taught these very same things in Bible college. This is, it was just embedded. It was what we learned, what we were taught to preach. 
Now, once again, if we simply keep reading in the very chapter that we're in, Psalm 22, we've only read verse 1, and Jesus only quoted verse 1. But if we keep reading, the psalmist unveils what Jesus was really referring to metaphorically that was happening to him. Let's go down. Verse 24 of chapter 22. For he has not despised nor abhorred, or abhorred, abhorred. How do you say that word? Yeah, abhorred. The affliction of the afflicted. Nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. So it's been taught that God separated himself from Jesus, turned his back on him because of he was so holy, he couldn't stand to look upon sin. Jesus. I want to remind you, Jesus was God incarnate flesh. You can't separate God from God. While Jesus was 100% human, he was 100% God as well. Follow me. I'm going to do some walking here. See, we, we conveniently take Jesus, who's part of the Trinity, inseparably God. We conveniently take him and say that God the Father separates himself because he's so holy and can't look upon sin that when Jesus was hanging on the cross and became sin with our sin, admittedly, God turned his back on him. Verse 1 suggests that. But that is not scriptural. And that is not what happened. That is what Jesus was repeating metaphorically and experientially from his emotions. That's what he was experiencing as a human. But God the Father did not separate or turn his back on Jesus, the Son of God, God himself hanging on a cross. And verse 24 says, For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. My God, my God, why, is you, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned, some translations say, why have you turned your back? Why have you turned your face from me? Isaiah picks up on that theme and says that God will turn his back, turn his face on sin because he's so holy. But that's not what happened. God was right there with God the Son. God the Father was right there with God, Jesus, hanging on the cross. He didn't turn his back on him, but that's how Jesus felt as Jesus was bearing the sin of the world. And that ought to give you hope today that as you encounter and deal with and wrestle with shortcomings and failures and sin, and you begin to feel like you're distant and away from God and God's going to turn his back on you, you need to know God never, never, never leaves you. He never forsakes you. And he never turns his back on you. God is not too holy to be in the midst of sinners. And Jesus, the very testimony of who God is and the Father's heart of love, Jesus was accused of eating with and hanging out with rank sinners, scum of the earth, one translation says. Now how could Jesus, being God, hang around with the scum of the earth if God is so holy that he can't be in the presence of sin and literally turned his back on Jesus. It's not possible. And yet we've interpreted this passage to mean that. 
because we don't study, because we don't read, because we've accepted version one of an atonement forced upon us through this penal substitution theory. And it's not what the church fathers taught. It's not what the Bible teaches or the scripture teaches. And it's not the father heart of God. And it's not who Jesus revealed as the father. How about punishment? Where does this idea come from that God is a punishing God looking for retribution, waiting for an opportunity? Well, primarily from Isaiah chapter 53. Plenty of Old Testament scriptures as well and certainly the sacrificial system of Levitical law also give people this idea, give theologians this idea. But let's look, let's unpack Isaiah chapter 53, since really it stems primarily from there and is bolstered by that. And certainly those who claim uh, or those who uh, believe in the atonement theory of penal substitution, they turn here to proof text what they're teaching. I'll start in verse 3, Isaiah chapter 53. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one whom the people, from whom the people hid their faces, he was despised. And we held him in low esteem. Verse 4, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God and stricken and afflicted. Stricken by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as sheep before his shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Watch this now. This gets intense now. Verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet, who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. Verse 10 is the real catcher here. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin. Now I submit to you that this translation and a number, numerous, modern translations have manipulated this text to validate or to be in concert with this theory of penal substitution, which was introduced primarily through John Calvin in the 1500s. John Calvin, by the way, you'll find it interesting, we'll go into this in greater depth next week. John Calvin happened to be a lawyer, hence the very legal language of penal substitution. So this translation here, as beautiful as it is, 
as, as timeless as it is, a, a, as critical and crucial to the very foundation of atonement as it is, parts of it have been manipulated in the translation to go along with a theory that our early church fathers didn't teach, that Jesus never revealed about God the Father, and yet it's in our translation. Calvin, in his teaching, translates Isaiah 53 as though God is the punisher, God puts our punishment on Jesus, Jesus bears God's wrath against us on the cross, and God's punishment is the reason for Jesus' suffering. That's very common today. That's version one of atonement. That's penal substitution. Now, What's wrong with that interpretation is that that's based on translators since John Calvin. Most of the translations you and I read were done by groups of translators brought together to translate the old Hebrew text. And all of them were translators who lived post John Calvin's preaching. And John Calvin's preaching was pervasive throughout Christendom. And these translators that translated this Hebrew text based much of their translation of these difficult kind of passages on Calvin's teaching and belief of penal substitution. Again, you've got to be here next week. Our best option in going back to the original Hebrew languages regarding this text is not the New International Version, is not the New Living Translation, is not the New King James Version, is not many of these beautiful, wonderful, and accurate, beautiful, and reliable texts, but you need to unpack them. You need to do exegesis. You need to look at original languages. You need to think about the Bible that was present when Jesus walked the earth, which is not even mentioned by our translators here. Anybody know what that Bible was? There was actually a translation, a Bible that had been gathered together containing the books of Hebrew Scripture prior to Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, prior to His coming even. This version of the Bible or the Hebrew Scriptures, let me put it that way, not the whole Bible, the New Testament hadn't been written yet, but this version of the Old Testament was produced around 200 to 300 B.C. It's called the Septuagint. It was the standard Greek Bible of Jesus' day, the one he read from. Now, better translations show that Jesus took sin upon himself as if it were a plague. And then that the Father cleansed him of that. Not the other way around. It, it wasn't the Father putting sin on Jesus that Jesus then had to accept and, and stand in the way of a wrathful God, and God carried out His vengeful anger on Jesus. It wasn't that at all. But Jesus did substitute, be, because of the power of sin, be, to bring the Adamic race, the Adamic sin, around to where He could kill it and deal with it and raise humanity out of it. He did become our substitute. He hung on that cross. Now, look at this, verse 5. I'm going to show you both of these together. First from the New International Version, and then verse 5 from the Septuagint. Here we go. Ready? 
Verse 5 from the New International Version. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. But here it is from the Septuagint. Watch this. He became sick because of our sin. Notice, underscore, sick. He became sick. Sin is a disease. Sin isn't just an issue of disobedience, as people have taught in version one of the fall and atonement, that the whole issue is about a disobedient uh, human, and, and so we have to appease a wrathful God because of our disobedience and get back in His good grace. Sin was viewed by God as a very unfortunate disease that deceptively entered into humankind. We continue with the Septuagint here, verse 5 of Isaiah 53. He became sick because of our sins. The pedology, the pedagogy, excuse me, pe pedagogy, pedagogy, interesting word. I, I, I've never heard of it before, the Septuagint, reading it in the Septuagint. The, the pedagogy of our peace was upon him. With his bruises, we ourselves are healed. Pedagogy means teaching, education, enlightenment. Now, let's read it in that light. Watch this. He became sick because of our sin. And the enlightenment, the revelation of our peace, of how to get peace back, right, standing with God back, was upon Jesus. Jesus was going to become the answer to man's sin. So that the atonement part of the story isn't that God had beaten death. <clears throat> that is the atonement part of the story. Excuse me, let me go back. Not that God has beaten him to death. Out Speaking of Jesus, God didn't beat Jesus to death out of anger and wrath and punishment. Instead, it's all about the suffering of iniquity and transgression and that all of that was laid on to Jesus as our atonement lamb. Hallelujah. Now let's move quickly, quickly. Let's move to verse 8. Watch with me now. We're going to read verse 8, both from the New International Version and from, again, a, a, a version that's a literal translation based on the Septuagint. It's called Young's Literal Translation. Watch this. Verse 8. For the transgression of my people, excuse me, for the transgression of my people, he was punished. Here it is from Young's literal translation. By the transgression of my people, he is plagued. There's two different words used there. One is for, one is by. NIV says for the transgression of my people. The Septuagint and the Young's literal says by the transgression of my people. Why is that important? Because for the transgressions of my people suggests a substitution that God didn't make. That God in His wrath substituted Jesus. And Jesus bore the wrath of a wrathful God who was looking for vengeance. But when it's by the transgression, look at this. So indeed Jesus was punished, but it was, it was because He became a plague by... He became diseased by the sin that was humanity's sin. Now, here's the big one. Verse 10, look with me. We're getting close to ending. Stay with me, please. Verse 10. So much hangs on this verse. Verse 10 of Isaiah 53. Here it is first from the NIV and then from the Septuagint. 
known in an acronym, by the way, so since it's a long word, Septuagint, and people can't say it, LXX, Septuagint. Verse 10, NIV, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. That is at the heart of penal substitution. That is at the heart of version number one of atonement theory that most people and most, most Christians believe and have been taught. That the Lord crushed Jesus. That the Lord caused Jesus to suffer. But here it is from the Septuagint. And the Lord desires to purify him of the plague. Now it all fits. How different is that? Jesus became sick with the plague of sin our sin. And what, the, what was the Lord doing in that? He wasn't wrathful. He wasn't trying to take out vengeance on Jesus. He came and he moved on our stead. He took our plague. And what was God's desire in all of this? To purify Jesus and heal him and deliver him from that plague. That was God's heart towards God, Jesus, his son. Woo, what a different way of looking at Isaiah chapter 53, it totally changes who God is, how we believe about God. Now, I'm going to end our session today with a quote from Jonathan Welton, tremendous man of God, and theologian and author who has written exhaustively about these, uh, these uh, atonement theories. And here's what he says regarding Isaiah 53, listen, we'll have it on the screen for you. In this passage, sin is pictured as a disease that humanity has. And the atonement lamb, Jesus, the suffering servant, stepped in, took the disease on himself, carrying our sins, burdens, sorrows, and all of it like a plague to the cross. Through his death and resurrection, he took the plague into the grave. And when he came out of the grave, he left it all in the grave. As a result, he released a new creation, a new race of second Adam. We get a very different picture from this passage when we translate it without the lens of the modern atonement theories that put the Father and the Son at odds with each other. We're going to end there today. Oh, I have so much. I, I told you at the beginning of this series, I'm going to take my time. If it takes me several more weeks than the first time I taught this to our church at Genesis, I'm going to take it. And I, I know I may have rushed some things today, but I, I, I'm really dissecting this. I'm, I'm breaking what went into one lesson when I taught this a couple of years ago, and I'm dividing it up into multiple lessons so that I can really unpack this and be detailed with you and be sure that all of you have the understanding that you need regarding this important subject of why Jesus had to die. So next week, we'll pick up with this and we'll talk about these theories in detail and really help you define the loving heart of the Father towards the Son and how that God's nature has never changed from that that we see in creation. Let us make man in our image so that we can love them, fellowship with them, give to them. 
when sin entered the garden, here's what God said. No! No, I refuse to give up. I refuse to allow sin to overcome humanity. I refuse to allow Satan to have his way. No! And God entered in in his love and he engaged humanity with a plan. Jesus, our atonement, our beautiful substitute. We'll talk more next week. I have a song for you as we close our time together. It's one that we've used before. However, in, in this version of it, um, and yes, my wife reminds me about communion. So if you've gathered your communion elements, we want to take communion now as this song is playing. So in this version of the song, it's shorter and it's not a live concert. It's not live concert footage. And one of the reasons we're doing this in the absence of our own worship leader is so that Facebook doesn't black out the content. When we stream to Facebook, if it's copyrighted material out there, something we've downloaded from YouTube, as often these great videos that all of our churches use are, Facebook goes through and blacks out that content so that you can't see it for that period three, four, five minutes. So that that won't happen, I'm going to play this one for you. Get your elements, get your communion elements, all right? And could we right now, everybody here, we have communion elements right up here at the table, if you would, come and get your uh, communion elements. It's a self-contained communion cup that has the bread and the cup all together. You say, I'm not worthy to take communion. Oh, yes, you are. You're worthy in Jesus. Jesus made you worthy. You say, well, I, I don't belong to this church. That's not a problem. You belong to Christ's body. That's what's important. And so I'd like everybody right now, if you would, come to the communion table, get your cup. There's sanitizer there. You can sanitize your hands, pick up just the self-contained cup for you. And during this song now, we're going to receive communion. You do it there at home, and we'll see you next week.
ordinance of the Lord. Uh, and we can start that song when I'm finished, just start it over as we fellowship and leave. Uh, this represents our oneness. The word atonement means at one with. Okay? When you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you are declaring by faith, I am one again with God because of what Jesus did. And we celebrate. Right? You're forgiven. You're cleansed. You're made righteous. Nothing you have to do. No behavior modification. God loves you supremely. Created you to have fellowship with Him. Amen. Let's take and eat. This is His body. Broken for us. Let's eat. Now, we take the cup, which is his blood. Aren't you thankful that Jesus was willing? Aren't you thankful? Aren't you thankful? Amen. Lord, we take your cup. This is my body. We take your blood. We're one with you. Let's take and drink. Amen. God bless you, everybody. Have an incredible rest of your weekend. Darkness, my God, that is who you are.